This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 8 of Office Hours, and we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. This is Part 3 of a three-part introduction to the Reformation. In Part 1, we looked at the background to the Reformation in the medieval church. In Part 2, we looked at what the Reformation was. And in this episode, we're thinking about that figure at the center of the Reformation, Martin Luther. The medieval and late medieval Christian lived in a world in which salvation was merely possible, but never certain either in this life or even after death. It was never more uncertain than in the centuries leading up to the Reformation. There had been something of a revolution in Western theology in which the sinner was said to be not so sinful at all. In fact, he was said to have been given in nature everything he needed, and if he only cooperated with what God had given everyone by nature, he could be saved. The slogan that young Martin Luther learned was, to those who do what lies within them, that is, what is given to us by nature, God does not deny grace. The problem that young Martin had And the problem that a great number of earnest Christians in the late medieval period had was this. Who among us is really doing what lies within us? To make matters worse, the medieval church taught that God was a fearsome judge, that Jesus was and is a fearsome judge. But there was no perfect mediator between us and God. And so that left the Christian on his own hook, as it were, to cooperate with the manifold grace that was said to be present in the sacraments in the Roman Church. Martin Luther was probably born in 1483. We know he was born in Eisleben County, Mansfield, in Saxony, in north-central Germany. And it was there that he spent his entire life, and from where he rarely strayed. In God's providence, you'll see in the story of Martin Luther that one person in one place really can turn the world on its head. His father intended him for the law, but in providence, God intended him for the church. On 2nd July, 1505, having completed his master's, Martin was returning to university at Erfurt, about 50 miles south of Eisleben, to begin his law studies after a visit with his parents. He was caught in a thunderstorm, during which he was thrown to the ground. In terror, he cried out, St. Anne, help me. I will become a monk. Much to his father's disgust, Martin honored his vow, and after a final party with some friends at school, he entered an observant, or black, monastery at Erfurt in July. Two years later, 1507, he was ordained to the priesthood. This was not a socially advantageous move. Monks and theologians were very near the bottom of any most admired profession poll in the time, and it was certainly not a move that would please his father. Monks were considered lazy, unproductive, and often immoral. He took his monastic duties seriously, however. He didn't enter the monastery on a fluke. This was a radical step. Martin was trying to find a way to satisfy a hidden, righteous, and holy God. And he was a dutiful monk. Just ten years after he entered the order, he was made a vicar and placed in charge of eleven monasteries. Let's back up and think about his education for just a moment. He had entered the University of Erfurt in 1501. His undergraduate studies were dedicated to mastering grammar, logic, and rhetoric, that is, the basic facts of education, 
how to think, and how to speak well. His undergraduate education was designed to equip the student in the skills of oral debate, quick-wittedness, and systematic discussion. And he earned his bachelor's degree, and as I said, he earned his master's degree. From the first day of his university training, Aristotle was to be regarded as the philosopher. You remember that the humanist cry was, back to the sources, or ad fontes. So his teachers at Erfurt wanted their pupils to read Aristotle for themselves in Greek. No one could possibly hope to be considered a well-educated person in the 16th century and not have a thorough grasp of Aristotle. His master's education included even more specialized reading in Aristotle. The last part of his master's was spent in learning what we know as the quadrivium, that is, music, math, geometry, and astronomy. He also spent time in seminars and disputations on important places in Aristotle's works. In 1508, he was sent to the relatively new university at Wittenberg to lecture on Aristotle. So Luther knew his Aristotle. In March 1509, he was permitted to begin teaching on the Bible in the university, and in the autumn, he was given the authority to lecture on the doctrines of the church. He interrupted his studies in 1510 to travel to Rome on business for his order. It was a distressing experience. He had hoped to gain spiritual strength by visiting that place that he had come to regard and was made to think of as the holy city. But when he got there, he was shocked by the amount of blasphemy he heard among the Italian priests. The indulgences for sale in Germany were nothing in comparison to what could be bought in Rome. But Luther pious fellow from a small town that he was, climbed the holy steps to St. Peter's Basilica on his knees, saying the Lord's Prayer at each step, in order to free his grandfather from purgatory. When he arrived at the top, he is said to have been overwhelmed by skepticism and doubted who knows if it's really true. Later, he would agree with the German saying that if there's a hell, then Rome is built on it. In October of 1512, young Martin was made Doctor of Theology and Professor of Sacred Scripture in the University of Wittenberg. Shortly thereafter, he was given the Chair of Biblical Studies, which he held until his death. One of the great problems in studying Luther is the question of exactly when did Luther become a Protestant? This question has been debated in Luther studies for a number of years. Did he become a Protestant in 1513 or as late as 1519? In the preface to his published Latin works in 1545, Luther himself said that it was in 1519 that he first properly understood the phrase, the righteousness of God. Without getting too far into the weeds, the best way to reconcile what we know from Luther and what we can observe about his life is to say something like this. He became a Protestant gradually in stages, beginning with his first lectures on the Psalms from 1513 to 1515 and ending with the Diet of Worms in 1521. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. It'll be good to trace out the steps on Luther's journey to Protestantism so that we can understand him, his development, and to understand ourselves and our own tradition. In 1513 through 1515, in his first series of lectures, he worked through the Psalms. And through the course of those lectures, he moved away from the Pelagianizing theology that I described in the previous episode, and he embraced something like the Pauline doctrine of sin as it had been mediated to the church through St. Augustine. He came to understand what we know as the doctrine of total depravity, that is, that all our faculties are profoundly corrupted by the vitiating power of sin. 
and that by nature, in Adam, we are all dead in sins and trespasses, and that we only come to spiritual life by God's sovereign, unconditional, electing grace. Still, like many other late medieval Augustinians, he still thought that the basis for our acceptance with God, and ultimately our salvation, lies in our inherent, actual, personal sanctification and righteousness. In the winter of 1515-1516, after completing his lectures on the Psalms, he began lecturing through the book of Romans. And as he came to Romans 4.3, he found the text, which in the Latin Bible, which says in translation, Abraham believed God and it was reputed to him for righteousness. Through the course of his lectures on Romans, he came to see that the righteousness by which a sinner is able to stand before God is not that which is wrought in us by his grace and cooperation by grace, but it's a righteousness that is outside of us and is credited to us. We might call this a forensic doctrine of justice or justification. Remember, the medieval church had said that God can only justify us and save us if we are actually, inherently, intrinsically, perfectly righteous. But that's not what Luther found in the book of Romans. What he found is that Christ has satisfied the divine justice for us and his righteousness is imputed to us. A little more than 20 years later, in his commentary on Galatians, Luther articulated more completely what would become his mature view and the confessional Protestant view shared by the Lutheran and Reformed churches. He said this, The sophists pretend that they love the Son of God and give themselves for him, for they teach that purely by his natural endowments a man is able to perform congruent merit and to love God and Christ above all things. Therefore, the true way of being justified is not, he said, that you begin to do what lies within you. That is the phraseology they use. If a man, they say, does what lies within him, God infallibly gives him grace. Now take both laws, the ceremonial law and the moral law or the Decalogue. Imagine that by congruent merit, you have made so much progress that the Spirit has been granted to you and that you have love. Imagine, I say, that by doing what lies within you, you acquire grace on the basis of congruent merit, then you do not need Christ, but he has become useless to you and has died to no purpose. What Luther progressively rediscovered in his lectures on the Psalms and Romans is that the biblical message is one of sovereign, unearned, undeserved, freely given divine favor to helpless, corrupt sinners. And ultimately, he will see, as he goes on in his studies, that it is received through faith alone in Christ alone. He rediscovered that the righteousness that can stand before God is outside of us. It belongs originally and ultimately to another, that is, to Christ. And this alien righteousness, that is, which belongs to Christ and is outside of us, becomes ours when God freely imputes Christ's righteousness to us. So the ground or the basis of God's declaration about us is Christ's work for us, not the Spirit's work in us. The third breakthrough was his redefinition of faith. Early on in his lectures on Romans, he had encountered Romans 1.16, the just, or the righteous, shall live by faith. As a student 
And as a monk, he had learned that the faith that justifies is a faith that is formed by love. Faith involves trust in this view, but it's our cooperation with grace and our obedience that makes faith justifying and saving. He had learned that faith cannot be merely trusting in God, merely confidence in his promises, because that would be presumption. Now, however, as he lectured through Galatians and then through Hebrews and then through the Psalms again, he came to see that faith in justification and in salvation is not formed by love. The sanctifying work of God in us by his Spirit and our cooperation with that work of the Spirit in us is not what makes faith powerful. What makes it powerful is its object. Faith, Luther learned, looks to Christ. Faith trusts Christ. Faith believes the gospel and its promises. It is Christ and his promises that make faith powerful. For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the Reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California. There's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously, and the Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church, and it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Looking back at his gradual awakening to the true nature of faith and to the gracious nature of salvation, Luther wrote, Meanwhile, in that same year, 1519, I had begun interpreting the Psalms once again. I felt confident that I was now more experienced since I had dealt in university courses with St. Paul's letters to the Romans, to the Galatians, and the letter to the Hebrews. I had conceived a burning desire to understand what Paul meant in his letter to the Romans. But thus far there had stood in my way not the cold blood around my heart, but that one word which is in chapter 1, the justice of God is revealed in it. I hated that word, the justice of God, which, by the use and custom of all my teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically as referring to formal or active justice, as they call it. That is, the justice by which God is just and by which he punishes sinners and the unjust. But I, blameless monk that I was, felt that before God I was a sinner with an extremely troubled conscience. I couldn't be sure that God was appeased by my satisfaction. I did not love, no, rather I hated the just God who punishes sinners. In silence, if I did not blaspheme, then certainly I grumbled vehemently and got angry at God. I said, isn't it enough that we miserable sinners, lost for all eternity because of original sin, are oppressed by every kind of calamity through the Ten Commandments? 
Why does God keep sorrow upon sorrow through the gospel and through the gospel threaten us with his justice and his wrath? This is how I was raging with a wild and disturbed conscience. I constantly badgered St. Paul about that spot in Romans 1 and anxiously wanted to know what he meant. I meditated night and day on those words until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. The justice of God is revealed in it as it is written. The just person lives by faith. I began to understand in that verse the justice of God, that by which the just person lives, is a gift of God, that is, by faith. I began to understand that this verse means that the justice of God is revealed through the gospel, but it is a passive justice, that is, that by which the merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, the just person lives by faith. All at once I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise through open gates. Immediately I saw the whole of Scripture in a different light. I ran through the Scriptures from memory and found that other terms had analogous meanings. The work of God, that is, what God works in us. The power of God, by which He makes us powerful. The wisdom of God, by which He makes us wise. The strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. I exulted in this sweetest word of mine, the justice of God with as much love as before I had hated it with hate. This phrase of Paul was for me the very gate of paradise. Afterward, I read Augustine's On the Spirit and the Letter, in which I found what I had not dared hope for. I discovered that he too interpreted the justice of God in a similar way, namely, as that with which God clothes us when he justifies us. Although Augustine had said it imperfectly and did not explain in detail how God imputes justice to us, still it pleased me that he taught the justice of God by which we are justified. By 1519, then, he understood that when Paul says, live by faith, he does not mean live by his faithfulness, that is, by our faithfulness, our cooperation with grace. That's what he had always thought. That's what he had been taught when he was in university. That's what the monks believed in his monastery. Now he understood that to live by faith means to live by trusting in Christ and in his finished work for us. The fourth breakthrough was his gradual realization that there are two ways of speaking in Scripture relative to justification and salvation, law and gospel. Traditionally, the church had spoken of law and gospel in historical terms. The term law is a way of referring to the Old Testament and gospel referring to the New Testament. To be sure, this way of speaking did not go away entirely, but Luther saw that relative to the sinner's standing before God, relative to his salvation, law and gospel are two distinct words. And he explained it this way. The law is the word of God in which God teaches and tells us what we are to do and not to do, as in the Ten Commandments. The other word of God is not law or commandment, nor does it require anything of us, but after the first word, that of the law, has done its work and distressful misery and poverty have been produced in the heart, God comes and offers his lovely living word and promises, pledges, and obligates himself to give grace and help that we may get out of this misery and that all sins not only be forgiven but also blotted out and that love and delight to fulfill the law may be given besides. See, this divine promise of his grace and of the forgiveness of his is properly called gospel. And I say again, and yet again, 
that you should never understand gospel to mean anything but the divine promise of His grace and of the forgiveness of sin. For this is why, to this point, St. Paul's epistles were not understood and cannot be understood by our adversaries even now. They do not know what law and gospel really are, for they consider Christ a legislator and the gospel nothing but the teaching of new laws. This is nothing else but locking up the gospel and obscuring everything, for gospel is Greek and means good news, because in it is proclaimed the saving doctrine of life, of the divine promise, and grace, and the forgiveness of sins are offered. Therefore, works do not belong to the gospel, for it is not laws but faith alone because it is nothing whatever but the promise and offer of divine grace. He, then, who believes the gospel receives grace and the Holy Spirit. Therefore the heart becomes glad and joyful in God, and then keeps the law gladly and freely, without the fear of punishment, without the expectation of reward. For it is sated and satisfied with that grace of God by which the law has been satisfied. For Luther... As for Calvin after him and the Reformed, this distinction is essential to understanding Scripture. In 1532, he put it this way, This difference between the law and the gospel is the height of knowledge in all Christendom. Every person and all persons who assume or glory in the name of Christian should know and be able to state this difference. If this ability is lacking, one cannot tell a Christian from a heathen or a Jew. Such supreme importance is this distinction. This is why St. Paul so strongly insists on a clean-cut and proper differentiating of these two doctrines. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. You may have heard or read that this distinction belongs exclusively to Luther and the Lutherans, but we find this same sort of language in Calvin and in Zacharias or Sinus, Caspar Olivianus, Theodore Beza, William Perkins, and throughout the Orthodox Reformed tradition right up to the modern period in J. Gresson Machen and Louis Burkhoff. So it's something that is shared by both parts of the Protestant tradition, that is, the Lutheran and the Reformed. The fifth and final point of development may have been the last to develop, and it's not easy to trace, but we can see it clearly emerging in 1521. Although he was already under the imperial ban for his teachings, the Emperor Charles V promised him safe conduct from Wittenberg to Worms. And when he arrived, amidst great fanfare, he was brought into the imperial hall, in the center of which stood a table with his books. He was asked if they really were his, and if he was ready to recant. Nervously, he asked for more time, and so he was given a day to think. The next day, he was brought again into the imperial chamber, and he began to debate. He said, well, the books were his, but that they were various in nature, and he began a long discussion about their contents. Johann Eck, the imperial theologian, cut him short and demanded that he answer candidly and without horns, by which he meant, on the one hand, on the other hand. So Luther responded in German, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot 
and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither safe nor right. May God help me. At Worms, Luther articulated the formal principle of the Reformation, that God's Word alone is the sole, final authority for the Christian faith and the Christian life, where the medieval church had reversed that order and made the church the final authority for the Christian faith and the Christian life. Luther asserted on the basis of the Word of God that the church may not teach or impose anything that is not taught or necessarily implied by God's Word. The church, he said, is a servant, a minister of the Word, a creature of the Word, not the creator of the Word. This is a great charter of Christian liberty. With those words, my conscience is captive to the Word of God, Luther asserted the primacy of Scripture, God's Word, over the tyranny of human opinion. But he did not just merely talk about God's Word. As we've seen, he began commenting on Scripture almost immediately in 1513, and he continued lecturing on Scripture until his death in 1546. He translated Scripture into German. He preached God's Word. Indeed, in 1522, he attributed the entire Reformation to the power of God's Word. In his sermon, he said the following, The first thing I ask is that people should not make use of my name and should not call themselves Lutherans, but Christians. What is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor, stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? I simply taught, preached, wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then, while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my dear Philip and my Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or an emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. If we think of the Reformation churches as a family, then Luther is our common ancestor. It may be that if you identify with a Reformed confession that you have not read a great deal of Luther for yourself. Were you to ask him, he would encourage you to read some of these works, such as his small catechism from 1529. And of course, there are the so-called Reformation treatises of 1520, and those are the Address to the Christian Nobility, the Babylonian Captivity of the Church, and Freedom of the Christian Man. Those are frequently bound together as one volume or as a set. And if you're a little more adventurous and patient, his great 1525 treatise on the bondage of the will may be his greatest work of all. And if you're looking for a biblical commentary, his mature commentary from the 1530s on Galatians is a marvelous piece of work. If you're looking for a biography of Luther, probably the best modern English language biography of Luther is Heiko Obermann's Luther, Man Between God and the Devil. This brings our introductory series to a close. Season eight will continue with discussions with the faculty about the Reformation then and now. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.